Okay. I think I can probably reach the back of the room. And you know, studying church history gives me an interesting perspective that you know, 2,000 years ago, they didn't actually have these. And they did, they did work out church. I'm not sure how they did it. But. Um, we have these cards that uh, could take up some refrigerator space if you would want to give them that. Um, I'll have our family and where we're going. It just reminds you to pray for us, so we'd appreciate that. And it's, it shows you where in Africa we're going. I need these so that I can remember my own geog- the geography of, uh, of where it is. Um, and we also have a website, ChristFamilyInZambia.org, um, that you're welcome to go to. And uh, you can see a little bit more about uh, what we're doing. We're going to send out um, uh, monthly or so updates. So we have a, a sign-up sheet if you would like to uh, give us your email address. We can put you on that list and then get an email uh, once a month or so. Um, if I could also, and I didn't plan on this, but um, just give a uh, plug for the CCEF stuff that you're, you're doing. That was just encouraging. Um, I, uh, I went to Westminster Seminary that houses CCEF, and I didn't study counseling there, but I audited the uh, classes because you can do that for free and just love them. And I got to sit in live the, uh, the class that David Pallison did, the ones that uh, you guys, th- that you took, um, Dynamics of Biblical Change, which is just like buying wisdom, I think. I mean, the Bible says to buy wisdom, and yes, you pay $600 for it, and then you even get reimbursed for it, so the, the church is buying wisdom for you, although you have to do the hard work of, of actually uh, listening and um, of doing the work. But, uh, oh, it's just a tremendous opportunity. And I also audited the class so that I could get the audio, and, and I must have listened to that class three or four times. We even listen to it as a family sometimes when we're on long trips. So, um, yeah, just phenomenal, I think, that the stuff was so good. I also, when I was there, got a chance to sit in on Julie Lowe's class on counseling children. Um, and that was uh, just also very, very helpful as well. I don't know what the uh, online version is, but she has got wisdom too. So uh, just an extra little plug for that, maybe if that is helpful. Uh, and it's so awesome that the church is reimbursing that. What a statement of how the church wants to use their, their resources to uh, invest in the fellowship. Uh, well, it's a joy to be here with you and uh, just enjoy coming here and the feedback and the, even just as I'm preaching and sharing with you, the, the, uh, the feedback that you, you're, you give and just the conversations, it's, it's always so encouraging. And I appreciate, too, you listening and, and caring about uh, our, our trip to, um, to Africa, our, our work there. Well, turning your Bibles to the book of Acts, we're going to look at chapter 16, a portion of that. And uh, verses 15 through 16, or sorry, verses 6 through 15. And um, I've chosen this passage because it relates to missions, the the season that our family is moving into. Uh, As Albert said, we're we're heading to Zambia in January, Lord willing, and we will have a one-year commitment, but then after that we'll see where God leads us. And I'll teach at a Bible college there that is training pastors for ministry throughout Africa. And it's especially focused on equipping missionaries to go throughout Africa. There are about, in Africa, a thousand unreached people groups. That means a thousand groups that are their own distinct um, nation, uh, not, not geopolitically, but yet there's this own distinct language, their own distinct customs, they're sort of isolated. A thousand groups like that that have had no real evangelistic contact. Uh, the, the people don't really have any access to the gospel. And what the school is trying to do is raise up 
um, people in Africa. There are a number of Christians in Africa. The school is trying to raise them up, equip them, and send them out because they may already know the language or the equivalent language or something that, that makes them um, very... Uh, it makes it a lot easier for them to get to these unreached people groups. So the school is raising up uh, pastors and church leaders and counselors and teachers uh, in Africa for the local churches and also trying to branch out and uh, send the gospel to places in Africa that it hasn't yet reached. So we're excited about this opportunity, very, very excited about the new door of ministry that God has opened up for us. And what I'd like to do this morning is uh, in thinking about that, um, share with you a passage in the book of Acts that is a key event, that records a key event of one of Paul's missionary journeys. And this is where Paul, in Acts 16, journeys to Macedonia to preach the gospel, and Lydia, a Greek Gentile, responds. And, and by the way, I have a daughter named Lydia, so... We are especially excited about that story, and I, I tell you that in part because last time I talked about Lydia, one of my children told me that I had called her Liddy throughout the message, and uh, if I start doing that, it's not because I take all the Bible names and shorten them. <laughs> We're going to look at Matt and what he did. And <laughs> no, um, <laughs> That's not what I normally do, it's just because I am used to calling her Liddy, and that may happen and show up in the message, so uh, I give you a heads up that way. Uh, but here's the story, and I think it's a beautiful story, and see if you agree with me here. Acts 16, starting in verse 6, so you can follow along if you will. And they went through the region of Phygera and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Again, this is Paul on his missionary journey. This is what he's doing. And when they came to Mysia, they attempted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we, and by the way, see Luke there is now come on board. He's telling this story firsthand. We sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in the city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside to the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. We sat down and spoke to the women who had come. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we ask that you would give us wisdom and insight. Lord, we thank you for saving this woman and for all the ways in which you've worked in the book of Acts and still work today. Lord, work in our hearts to 
open our hearts to the things that you are speaking to us in your word, that we would respond with faith and faithfulness to you, our Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this passage sort of reeks of missions, doesn't it? I mean, you, you can't read the book of Acts without realizing that God has a concern for missions, and He wants the church to be concerned for that as well. Jesus said in the beginning of the book of Acts, you will be my witnesses to the uttermost parts of the earth, to the ends of the earth. And from the perspective of the Jews in Jerusalem, this, what we see here in Acts 16, was the ends of the earth, right? This was Gentile country. This is part of Paul's second missionary journey. The first one happened a year or so earlier at the initiative of the Holy Spirit. The believers were praying in Antioch and the Holy Spirit called them and said, set apart Paul and Barnabas for the work that I have for them. And that work was planting and establishing churches throughout Asia Minor, modern day Turkey. And then about a year and a half later, after the first missionary journey, Paul had the idea, hey, let's go back and visit the churches that we established and see how they're doing. And they also were going to relate to these churches the decision of the Jerusalem Council. We'll we'll talk a little bit more about how that figures in later. But along the way, as they're traveling to visit these churches, along the way they have a vision from someone from Macedonia calling out for them for help, for deliverance. And they conclude, rightly, in terms of their understanding of the Bible, that this must mean a call for us to go and preach the gospel to them because there's no other help that will save their souls. And so they go and preach the gospel in the region of Macedonia. Now, they make this whole journey sound a lot easier than it actually is. I kind of looked at this stuff on a map and having lived in Turkey, from familiar with the terrain and the places, this was no... <laughs> easy traveling here. When this passage starts, they're, they're in the middle of modern-day Turkey, walking northwest. That's about 600 miles they're traveling. And the doors of ministry are being closed all the way. 600 miles of walking and no opportunity to do ministry along the way. And then finally, they they find themselves in the westernmost part of Turkey, south of modern-day Istanbul, and that's where they get the vision to cross over the Aegean Sea and go to Macedonia. And that was not an easy trip either. They've already undergone weeks of walking in dangerous country, and now they have a dangerous sea journey. But they did it. They were obedient. And I think it's instructive for us that the difficulty of the traveling which would be obvious to anyone who's familiar with the terrain, doesn't even figure into the account of their experience. That's telling us something. They're just like, yeah, we went there, but that's 600 miles on foot. But but see, those difficulties, those uh, trials, those inconveniences, they don't count for much in view of the call to bring the gospel there. The mentality is, of course, we're going to have trials. We're following Jesus who was crucified. When you're serving the Lord, don't be surprised when you encounter trials. That's normal. Well, when they get to the region of Macedonia, they are led to a particular city of Philippi, 
doesn't say how, but somehow they knew to go there, which was a leading city in those days. It, it was kind of like a little Rome. It, it had a high status in the uh, Roman um, Empire. And apparently the knowledge of the one true God was very limited in that city because there isn't even a synagogue. There's just some women down by the water having a prayer meeting of sorts on the Sabbath day. These women would have been known as God-fearers. That is, they revered the God of the Old Testament. They were not Jewish, but they revered the God of the Old Testament, and they, yet they did not know about Jesus. Yet. <laughs> Until Paul goes down by the water and he preaches the gospel to them. This is breaking social convention. Jewish men would not have had interactions like this with women. And, and that was because in that culture, women would have been beneath them. It, that would have not have been worth their time. But Paul, of course, doesn't see things that way. He sees things through the lens of the gospel, and he sees that they are souls in need of Christ. People made in the image of God. And so Paul preaches, and Lydia listens, and she considers the words of Paul, and the, then she responds. And she's baptized in obedience to Christ. Lydia is a Gentile from Thyatira. She's part of the uttermost parts of the earth where Jesus had said that they would witness of the gospel. She's also a woman of considerable means. She's a seller of purple. That would have been a high cost to having that purple cloth business. And she apparently was able to able to make that, able to do that, and, and turn a profit from it. And it seems like that was going well because she owns her home large enough to host what appears to be the church. She has wealth. And she offers the, the missionaries hospitality. She says, if you have judged me faithful, stay in my house. She urges them. It's interesting. The same word that, that's used for urge or beseech from the, the man in the vision from Macedonia urging Paul to come to them is then used of Lydia, urging Paul to stay with her. There's this switch from please come and help to please let me help you. That's the difference the gospel makes. It's not that we don't still need help as believers because, oh my, we do. But there should be in those who believe the gospel a compelling desire to also help in the work of the gospel. I think somebody said that, something similar to that with the street evangelism. We must want to help. We must be compelled to help the Word of God go forth. We must also know that she and her household are baptized. Household baptisms are common in the book of Acts. I don't think that requires us to understand these are infants being included in the baptism. Lydia may be somewhat older, and her household may include older children who could likely respond to the gospel on, her own, on their own. But however you look at this, what we see emerging from Lydia's life is obvious obedience and fruitfulness. And we see even more fruitfulness when we get to the end of this passage when Paul and Silas get arrested. They end up doing some prison ministry, <laughs> arrested and, and in jail. And then they miraculously get out, and at the end of Acts 16, verse 40, it says, So they went out of prison and visited Lydia. And it seems that the church had been meeting in her house. And so this is the story of Lydia. Now, what do we learn from this passage? Well, I think we learn 
at least from our initial reading of the passage, the importance of the gospel going forth. The gospel must be preached. Paul says in the next book, Romans, how will they hear without somebody preaching? And by the way, the book of Acts, I believe, is meant to be read along with Romans. That's one of the reasons why they're side by side. The theology of Acts, or sorry, the theology of Romans sort of explains and defends Paul's ministry in the book of Acts. How will they hear without somebody preaching? Is the theology that motivates Paul to take the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth at great cost to himself. But Paul also says in Romans, how will they preach unless they are sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. The book of Romans not only justifies Paul's missionary mentality, but he, the book of Romans also helps us see it as beautiful. I don't know about you, but one of the things that I appreciate most about the Lydia story is just how beautiful it is. It's just a great story. It's a beautiful story about the gospel going forth and impacting people's lives. I've told some people this week that I was preaching on the story of Lydia, and the response is always, oh, I love that story. It's just beautiful. Friends, I wonder if the gospel going to people who have never heard it before is beautiful to you. When was the last time you were excited and encouraged because you heard a story about the gospel going to people who hadn't heard it before? You know, there's a lot of motivation for evangelism that is driven out of guilt. You know, when was the last time you shared the gospel with someone? Or, or don't you realize that there's hell? And that kind of motivation has its place. But I think the, the motivation that will sustain us over the long haul and inspire us to the kind of selfless labor that we see in Paul and his companions is driven more out of beauty. It is beautiful for the gospel to go to places that it hasn't. It bears fruit and it increases. That's what it does. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Friends, do you see that as beautiful? Do you cultivate a sense of that being beautiful in your life? And when we see something as beautiful, the way where we work is that we want to be part of it. We want to participate in it. We want that to ooze into our lives. We want to ooze into that. But there's another layer to the Lydia story here, which I think Luke and the Holy Spirit clearly intend for us to see. And I think it reveals even more beauty. Let me ask you this. What are your thinking caps here? Does the Lydia story remind you of anyone else in Scripture? Any other part of Scripture? Does it come to your mind when you hear of Lydia? Quite often in the book of Acts, stories are told in such a way that are meant to connect to something in the Old Testament. So Ananias and Sapphira is meant to connect to the story of Achan in Joshua about how he committed that sin. And their, their sins are similar. The book of Acts has a lot of Old Testament quotations and allusions. It's, it's meant to tell us that even though God is doing a new thing, as the Scripture was read earlier, it is still connected to that old thing that He has been doing all along. What does Lydia remind you of? Who else in Scripture? What, what, other, what other motif in Scripture do you, where do you see a woman engaged in business and using her wealth for others? Where do you see a woman exemplifying hospitality? Where do you see a woman who is judged so highly, who is praised 
and fears the Lord. Where do you see a woman dealing in purple? Proverbs 31. Not a specific woman, but a type of godliness. Don't lose your place in Acts, but turn over to Proverbs 31. I think there's a clear connection between Lydia and Proverbs 31. And this isn't just something I made up. Commentators see a connection between these two. And uh, Theologian Mark Garcia in particular has helped me see the connection. And let me read for you Proverbs 31 and see if you can identify some connections in, to Lydia. I'll start at verse 10. An excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm. All the days of her life, she seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hand, she plants plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hands to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of snow for her household. For all her household is clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known at the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. Strength and dignity are her clothing. And she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth in wisdom. And the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. Wonderful passage there. We don't have time to talk about every detail. But I think what emerges from here is a woman who is strong and has skills and energy and desire to bless those who are under her care. This is what Lydia does. Both women have a business sense to them, right? The idealized woman in Proverbs is praised for buying and selling and working with her hands. Lydia, too, is engaged in the purple cloth business. And the fact that she owns her home large enough for the church to assemble there would suggest that she has done this well. But even more importantly, there's a connection between what they, there's a connection between them in terms of what they do with their wealth. They share it, right? The woman in Proverbs 31 shares with the poor, and there's a Hebrew play on words here. It's kind of like it's saying the hand that she uses to grasp the spindle, she opens to care for the poor. Lydia uh, implores Paul and his companions to come back to her house so she can show them hospitality. And then the church is meeting in her house. She is opening her home up to those in need, the church, to meet. But most of all, there's a connection in terms of their character. 
The woman in Proverbs 31 fears the Lord. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. And Lydia is introduced here as, as a God-fearer. In the beginning, she is among the people who are not Jewish, but knows the one true God, and she fears Him. She worships Him. And at the end, she's a believer in Christ. She's given the highest honor anyone, of anyone in the book of Acts. If you have judged me to be faithful, come to my house. And they do come to her house because she is faithful. Faithful to the Lord. Lydia is a virtuous woman worthy of praise. Lydia is the New Testament, Proverbs 31 woman. But for all their similarities, there is one very conspicuous difference. Proverbs 31 has a center to it. It is what we call in poetry, Hebrew poetry, a chiasm, where there's a beginning and there's the beginning and the end near each other. And then with a chiasm, it's like a giant X marking the spot at the very middle that is the main idea. In Proverbs 31, there's one verse that occurs at the very center of the passage. It is the only verse not about the woman, actually. It's verse 23. Her husband is known at the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. Most of the activities of the woman in the whole chapter are not directed to her husband, right? It's about her children, the poor, her maidens. And yet all she does, because of all she does, her husband is lifted up and exalted. Contrary to how this passage is often used, Proverbs 31 is not actually written for young women to kind of know how they should model their life. It's written for men so they should know what kind of woman to marry and to value for their whole life. This is the kind of woman you should look for if you want to be honored among the elders. And if we look at the preamble to this poem in verses 1 to 9, we see that this is especially the kind of woman you should look for if you happen to be a king. There's a kind of woman, according to Proverbs 31, verse 3, who brings down kings. This kind of woman lifts them up. In fact, reading the preamble of this poem, it's possible to see that the woman is actually personified as the crown of the king's glory. The woman crowns this man. Mark Garcia says we could illustrate Proverbs 31 by having the man in the middle and the woman act as two glorious wings that lift him up. But if that's the structure of Proverbs 31, it naturally raises the question, if we also see that Lydia is connected to Proverbs 31, where is Lydia's husband? Where's the man that she lifts up? Who's honored at the city gates? Who is the king that she crowns? You're reading the book, reading the passage about Lydia. The husband is very conspicuously absent. There's no reason to think she has a husband and every reason to think that she does not. It's likely that he died or maybe he divorced her as the divorce, the divorce rates at the time were appallingly high. To say that Lydia is the New Testament Proverbs 31 woman is to say that she lifts up and honors her husband, but where is her husband? Maybe we miss something in Acts 16. I think there actually is a husband in view of sorts. Let's go back to Acts 16 and see what we see. 
Let's notice a few details we, we skipped over. First of all, notice the fact that the Holy Spirit is active in directing the, the band of missionaries. Now, now, that's normal throughout the book of Acts. The Spirit directs Peter to Cornelius' house. The Spirit took Philip to the Ethiopian eunuch. It's normal for the Spirit be, to be directing missionaries. That, that's, that's not surprising. But nowhere in the book of Acts, at least that I could think of, does the Spirit tell missionaries not to go somewhere, right? And and if you look at the whole thing on a map, the the Spirit closes the door, of course, around a a 600-mile walk so that they don't waste any time getting to where they need to go. The Spirit is saying, not Asia, not Bithynia, but Macedonia. And not just anywhere in Macedonia, to Philippi. And not just anywhere in Philippi, down by the river to these people, to this woman. Notice also in Acts 16 and verse 7 that it is the Spirit of Jesus who is directing them. Nowhere else in the whole Bible do we read that phrase. The Spirit of Jesus. Jesus is active. He is present. He is working to direct Paul and his gang exactly where they need to go. Unusually active. The Spirit is not always active, but here is drawing particular attention to the Spirit's activity and connecting it to the Spirit of Jesus. It is His Spirit. And notice also that the Lord opens Lydia's heart to respond. The Lord. That's Jesus. The same one who guided Paul there, who said, not here, not here, but over here. That same one opened Lydia's heart that she responded to the Gospel. Nowhere else in Scripture does the Lord so directly, is the Lord so directly involved in bringing someone to faith. At least that is the language of the, this language is used. Christ is seeking Lydia. And Lydia responds to Christ. She is baptized, which shows her union with Christ. And Lydia is faithful. If you have found me faithful, come and stay in my house. And they do come. Because she is faithful. Faithful to the Lord. Lydia lifts up Christ by then caring for the church. She honors Christ by caring for those whom Christ loves. Now, I don't mean in any way that there's a physical marriage between Christ and Lydia. There's no physical union here in view at all. Jesus is not physically present. right? He's sitting at the Father's right hand waiting to return. That's where Jesus is bodily. But I think Lydia here personifies the church. And the way Christ pursues Lydia is a picture of Christ's specific pursuit of the church. I think that's not surprising for a couple of reasons. First of all, the church is often personified as a bride. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. Similar husband loved and gave Himself up for her. We read in the book of Revelation, Behold, the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride, that is God's people, have made herself ready. So this idea of the relationship between the church and Christ as a marriage, and the church as the bride, is is all over the Bible. There's another reason to think of Lydia in particular as representing the church, and that's because of where we are in the book of Acts. We are at a transition point in the book of Acts. They've just had the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, which 
uh, means that the leaders of the church have just recognized that the church includes the Gentiles. And it includes the Gentiles on the same footing as the Jews. There's no distinction in terms of proximity towards God. Part of the reason for this second missionary journey is to take that decision around to all the churches. And what better way for the Holy Spirit to illustrate the wisdom that He gave to the leaders of the church in, in Jerusalem than to have the first convert on this missionary journey be a woman in Philippi, it's not a Jewish area, from Thyatira, which, get this, is in the region, Thyatira is in the region called Lydia. Lydia was the name of a region, not a Jewish region, not a region known for great morality. So this Lydia, a woman named after a pagan region, is the object of God's special love, of Jesus' pursuit. And the way this woman responds lifts him up and glorifies him. It shows off Jesus' glory. So the thesis I propose is that Lydia is not simply, the way she's represented here in Acts, is not simply one convert among many. She's a real person to be sure. But she's also a picture of the church as the church is the object of Christ's special love. From heaven He came and sought her to be His holy bride, as the song says. Well, let me draw your attention to a few application points. Number one, revel in being sought after by Christ. Revel in being sought after by Christ. As we're we're just saying, Lydia is sought after with this specific sovereign love. That's very clear that Christ closes the door to ministry in place after place. And then Christ opens the door of her heart so that she could respond. When we talk about Christ's love for the church then, we don't mean that He has this kind of generic love that He feels for just whoever happens to be there. Christ has specific love for His people. He desires to unite them to Himself so that they will be in a relationship with Him and in a relationship with one another because He seeks the church as a church, as a gathering of people who are united to one another. Consider how the journey that Christ went on was infinitely greater than the journey that Paul went on, right? Though he existed in the form of God, he humbled himself taking on the form of a servant, being obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. He came down into our world, into the lowest position to seek after His church. No husband has ever condescended lower to receive his bride. And no husband has ever had more passion to be with his bride. Consider his high priestly prayer, Father, I desire that those who you have given me be with me that they may see my glory. If the marriage metaphor between Christ and the church teaches us nothing else, it teaches that there is intense love involved. He seeks after us with His sovereign love. He opens our hearts to draw us to Him. Otherwise, we could not respond. How beautiful is Christ. How beautiful are His feet that were pierced for us. 
And I think part of our spiritual formation is learning to see ourselves as the bride of Christ, the bride loved by Christ. Have you ever considered that the bookends of the Bible are a marriage? The Bible begins with a marriage and the Bible ends with a marriage. And that's no accident. And the principle of bookends teaches us that we should read everything in the middle in light of what we see at the end. Which means the whole thing is about relationship. It's about intimacy. It's about covenant union and communion. In other words, God is seeking to unite Himself to His people in a relationship where He will disclose Himself to them. And they will know Him. And He will know them. This is the deeper reason for us being made male and female. This is why God designs marriage as a union between a man and a woman. It's not simply because God delights in real diversity, although He does. He, he wants to see two different things come together. But even more, God wants there to be, a, to be little reenactments of this grand drama all over the world. He wants us to see ourselves corporately as the church, as the bride that is loved and sought after by Christ. And this identity as the bride who is loved and sought after by Christ is all the more remarkable when we consider what we are in our sinfulness. You see, the image of a, a marriage to describe God's relationship with people is not something unique to the, Old, to the New Testament. We see it all throughout the Old Testament as well. Israel is the wife of Yahweh. But they are not a faithful wife. They're actually a harlot. Read Ezekiel 16. It describes in graphic language how God's people have prostituted themselves. They've gone after other lovers. They've not lifted up their husband. They've brought God shame. The irony is that God's people have acted exactly like the woman who King Lemuel's mom tells him to avoid. And yet God has set His love on the people anyway. God's covenant faithfulness for His people means that even though we've sinned and mocked God and shamed Him, He still loves us and He still pursues us. This is the Gospel. Sisters and brothers in Christ embrace this identity as an unworthy bride sought after by the faithful husband. That's point number one. Revel in that. Point number two. We must respond in faithfulness. The beauty of God's sovereign love is that even though it comes to us when we are unfaithful, it changes us so that we become faithful. Lydia was judged to be faithful. And so also are we called as the church to faithfulness. And this faithfulness really matters because it, it brings honor and glory to Christ. If Christ is the bridegroom of the church in the Proverbs 31 model, our job as the church is to lift up and glorify Christ. Our job is to reflect His glory in every sphere of our lives. To lift Him up. Now, I want to be clear here, we're not saying that something is lacking in Christ, in God, and we need to supply it with our, our good works. No. What we are saying, though, is that God in His infinite wisdom has made a plan of sending His Son in human flesh. And the glory of His Son in human flesh is forever tied to the people who He has come to save. And so the glory of Christ is put on display by what the Bible describes as the fullness of His church, His bride. 
That's why we are, that's why He is washing us with the water of His Word, that we would be the spotless and radiant bride adorned for our husband. He shares His glory with us that we might be the church without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. We become beautiful. How beautiful is the church as she is adorned with the righteousness for her husband, from her husband. And Lydia is an example of the church, not only in how she is pursued by His sovereign love, but also how Christ sovereignly works to change her heart that she will respond in faithfulness. And finally, may we also be fruitful. May the church, may we be as, as the church fruitful. And this is the third point of application. Lydia displays fruitful motherliness. Not towards any of her own children, it would appear. She may have them, they may be older. The motherliness that we see in Lydia is toward the church. And so we recognize two uh, motifs of the church, as it were, in Scripture. The church as bride and the church as mother. And I think to understand the church rightly, we must embrace both of them. Which is to say, we must love God and our neighbor. We must worship God and also have the kind of religion, according to James, that cares for the orphans and the widows. Now, I don't mean the church as mother in the same way the Catholic church does, which sees it as a hierarchy, a a church within a church. I don't mean that. I mean the whole church as mother, which is to say the whole church caring and nurturing and loving its own. The Bible uses motherly language to describe the church. The Apostle John writes to the elect lady and her children. The elect lady is the church, and the children are the members. Paul talks about his care for the people in motherly terms. He says, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother caring for her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. And Paul says, my dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. The church has a motherly role for all those who are in the faith. Bearing them up, nurturing them, raising them up in the way that they should go. And men, I don't think I'm just speaking to women here. If Paul was, get this, Paul was as a nursing mother to the people. If Paul was that, do you think you will be anything less. The church needs men to act like men by tenderly caring for the weaker sheep. The church should care for its own, just as Lydia cared for the apostles who brought her the Word. And she cared for the young church by nurturing it in her house. Now, there's lots of ways we could go here in terms of application, and I pray that you will go there in the the weeks to come, but, but I want to make a particular application related to this theme of missions that we see running through this passage and part of the reason why I'm here. And here's the question to wrestle with, and I have more questions than I do answers in this part of the sermon, so I'm just raising those questions. What does it look like for the church to be the mother church, not just towards those people who are in our immediate vicinity, our immediate proximity? who need care. We should care for them to be sure. But what does it look like for the church to be the mother church 
towards the brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the world whose needs would often dwarf ours. Again, I don't have a lot of answers here, but, but I'm starting with questions. What does it look like for the church to be the mother church for the persecuted church in China, North Korea, and Iran? What does it look like for the church universal to care for the families of the pastors and church members who've been imprisoned or killed? What does it look like for the church universal to come alongside the church in Africa that is caring for and evangelizing the millions of orphans that have been left because of AIDS? And finally, the question that's motivated our family to move to Africa. What does it look like for the church to care for those places in the world to care for the church in those places in the world where the church is growing but is woefully under-resourced in terms of theological education. The Gospel Coalition calls what's happening in Africa and other parts of the world a, quote, theological famine. The Christian population is growing rapidly. It is. It's expanding in many parts of the world. It's, by the way, only really shrinking in the West. It's growing most everywhere else. Praise God for that. It's growing, though, in contexts where there is false teaching everywhere, including Islam. The need for theological equipping is often greatest in the places where the pastors have the least access to it. I'll just give you a taste of, of what this looks like in, in some places of the world. A friend of mine who's a pastor in, um, down in Burtonsville, uh, not too far away from here, was, was trying to help out some churches in Western Africa uh, along the lines of theological equipping. And he, he tried to realize what he should do, and then he realized, oh, wow, many of the pastors here do not even have a complete Bible. And he realized, well, we can do something about that. And he did. His church of about 80 members figured out how to raise some support and send about 8,000 Bibles to Africa and then went over and distributed them to the pastors. The idea of the church caring for the church is the major motivation behind our move to Africa, to pour into pastors and church leaders and missionaries there. Let me just give you two qualifications, though. I'm not saying that the church in the West is the one with all the answers and all the ability to do this. The whole church needs to care for the whole church. As I've interacted with the churches in Africa, I've seen that they have a lot that we can learn from. We need them as much as they need us. Nor am I proposing that you're responsible to single-handedly meet many of these needs. I'm not saying that you need to move to Africa, although you shouldn't necessarily rule it out either. Please don't let this be a guilt trip about all the things you're not doing. Please let beauty be the greater motivation. There's so much here that is truly beautiful, and I think if we embrace that, we'll see what God wants us to do. But I encourage you to embrace the church as both bride and mother. When we do that, I think we'll see that the bonds connecting us to our brothers and sisters throughout the world will be stronger than we realized. The more we see ourselves connected to Christ, the greater we realize our connection with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We will be motivated to learn about their needs, and we will pray. We will pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ who we are joined with. Let's pray.